We pick it up in chapter 17, verse 1, where he's in a thought process, but he says this. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord God a bull or sheep which has any blemish or defect, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. If there is found among you within any of your gates which the Lord your God gives you a man or a woman who has been wicked in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant, who has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or moon or any of the hosts of heaven, which I have not commanded and has told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is indeed true and certain that such an abomination has been committed in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has committed that wicked thing and shall stone to death that man or woman with stones. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all the people, so you shall put away the evil one from among you. If a matter arises which is too hard for you to judge between degrees of guilt for bloodshed, between one judgment or another, or between one punishment or another, matters of controversy within your gates, then you shall arise and go up to the place which the Lord your God chooses, and you shall come to the priests, the Levites, and to the judges there in those days and inquire of them, and they shall pronounce upon you the sentence of judgment. You shall do according to the sentence which they pronounce upon you in that place which the Lord chooses, and you shall be careful to do according to all that he, they order you. According to the sentence of the law in which they instruct you, according to the judgment which they tell you, you shall do, and you shall not turn aside from the right hand to the right hand or to the left from the sentence which they pronounce upon you. Now, the man who acts presumptuously and will not heed the priest who stands the minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall put away the evil from Israel, and all the people shall hear and fear and no longer act presumptuously. So, of course, Israel is in that covenant with God. It's individual and it's national. And as we continue through the book of Deuteronomy, bear in mind, you know, we're the church and we're the new covenant, the everlasting covenant. We're not in a national covenant like that. We're in a spiritual covenant, as Scott was praying repeatedly for us about being spirit-filled and the Holy Spirit being welcome. We're birthed into our covenant by the Holy Spirit. They were born into their covenant physically. Keep that in mind, right? Like Jesus said, you must be born again in Nicodemus. They were born ethnically into their covenant and they were to have laws and order and design. And so here, one of the things that's so separate Israel, we know this, but it's good to remind ourselves of this, that separate this nation is they didn't worship idols. They didn't worship the moon and the sun and the stars. They weren't subject to superstitions of men. They weren't afraid to walk by a black cat or under a ladder and those sorts of things. All the superstitions that men come up with, like Friday the 13th, the number 13th, or baseball players and all the little weird things they do because they're superstitious and all the things that we do. And, you know, we live in a world filled with religious superstition and we're, we're affected by it. For example, if there's a, a, a Saturday that's, that's the 13th of the month, which happens, of course, 12 times a year, most people don't want to get married on the 13th. They just don't like the date. And that's just superstition. And one of the beautiful things that Jesus did for me personally when I gave my life to him in 1987 was deliver me from superstition. Many of you know I was very superstitious and particularly being a professional athlete like baseball players are often superstitious I was really weird about little omens or superstitious things and it's bondage and God gave them his law contextually and he's given us Christ on the cross with an empty tomb 
so we won't be subject to false gods, false belief systems, and things that put us in bondage. So anything that comes in your life that usurps the place of Jesus Christ and your faith in him being Lord of all things, kill it. Kill it. Put it to death. Horoscopes, negative things that people say to you, family things that remind you of your past before you were saved. I'm telling you, execute it. Because it's the same principle. They had to execute things that were destructive to their minds, their souls, and their peace. And I'll tell you, the principle for the New Testament church is to kill those thoughts that are contrary to the Lord. In fact, exactly what Paul the Apostle said to the Corinthians, where he said, take captive every thought, any thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of Jesus Christ and the glorious gospel. That is supremacy over our universe, not superstition, demonic philosophies of demented men and false religion. Especially in a time like this, always is, truth is always truth, but especially in a time like this where people are swayed by such nonsense, by demonically inspired, devoid of truth and knowledge men and women leading us astray. Take those thoughts and kill them. Let Christ reign supreme in your mind, your heart, and your total being. Amen? Amen. Now, another thing about this passage. There is appeals court. They had a court of appeals. You could appeal higher. Like if it matters too hard for the local judges in Naphtali, go on down to Jerusalem, go before the priests, and hey, we've got a tricky situation here. It's like um, a Judge Judy kind of thing. And, you know, Judge Judy's been on the air for like 25 years, I guess. My dad really likes Judge Judy. So I don't normally watch Judge Judy. I don't normally watch any TV. But when we're watching taking care of my dad and we have him over, it seems like Judge Judy's on all day long, depending on, you know, what channel you're watching it. And I got to say, Judge Judy is pretty entertaining. Uh, having sat down with my dad recently and watched things, I'm like, oh, this is good. And they drag it out for 30 minutes. I'm like, hey, we can't take dad back yet because we're going to figure out how this ruling goes. And you learn a lot. You know, the guy borrows a snowmobile, drives it in a tree, and, yeah, and then it's his fault because he's a millennial. And the millennial says it's his fault because he said he was driving snowmobiles before I was born. And he drove my snowmobile 80 miles an hour to a tree and destroyed it. And I'm like, oh, this is good. This is good. So they all appeal to Judge Judy, and she says $5,000 to the millennial, because I can't give you more than that, but you, sir, you're 50 years old. Don't blame a teenager for your problems. It's like, yes, okay? So there's always a higher court. There should be. And we know the highest court of all is King Jesus. He's the monarch. He has the final say. Now, and again, we don't always get the, the right judgment from men. We'd like to get the right judgment from men. Wouldn't it be wonderful if all the men and women in the Supreme Court made rulings according to the priests and the Levites who were guided by the word of God. Can you imagine how different our society would be? We wouldn't be confused about our origin, about marriage, or our gender. But when you remove those boundaries, which we'll see soon enough in the text later on tonight, you just set yourself up for one thing. So it's not just two men living together. Now you've got, you know, preteen genital mutilation. It's never enough. The devil's never satisfied with death and destruction and deception. And darkness is not, there's not enough darkness for darkness. That's why Jesus calls it outer darkness. But he's the light. And in the kingdom, when we're in his presence, where there's no more tears and sorrow, his light is the light. There's no need for the sun or any of the celestial empire, that celestial things that we see out there in the billions of stars and billions of galaxies. Isn't that wonderful? Then in the coming kingdom, there's no shadow of turning with him. So, you know what? We don't have nine Supreme Court justices or appeal court justices that are always just and right. And we certainly don't have enough that fear the Lord and let his word guide and govern their every decision. But you know what? That's why there's no more tears or sorrows in heaven. 
in the new kingdom. Because all the things that offend and are an abomination are outside the kingdom on the day of Christ Jesus. And all the things that are true, dressed, and noble, they're in. And that's why it says in the last chapter of, Gen- of Revelation, what's filthy, let it be filthy still. And what's clean, let it be clean still. Because it'll be distinct and there'll be no fuzziness or gray ambiguity or lying men and women who try and sh- shout down with the council culture the truth of truthful men and women. That's where it's all going. So don't let all this temporary stuff going on around us right now move us because as I say to Scott Cunningham before service this is what we know for sure in the Bible Jesus is coming back and he said to be watching and ready and any eschatology which is the study of the return of Christ any eschatology that you might hold to it fits into that because that is so clear Jesus is coming again he said be watching and be ready and it could come any moment so however that plays out we'll let him be God and we'll be his faithful servants. Because he said, who is that faithful servant? So we may not get to be the faithful judge or priest who makes the good decision. But we can live like men and women who are consistent with that. Because if we're not governed by kings and presidents and parliaments and prime ministers and courts and judicial courts and supreme courts who are ruled and reigned by the Lord, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that our hearts and minds are ruled and reigned by the Lord. And he's the monarch of our heart and our mind. Because the preview of coming attractions. So we just need to let Christ reign right now in our lives and our decision making, our thought process from here to eternity. Because that way, when you step into eternity, you're not adjusting to a new government. You're just gliding right into the one you're already governed by. Now, it also says when you have a tough thing and you get an answer, it may not be the answer you like, right? Like, it might not be the answer you like. This reminds me of James chapter 1 where it says, If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, but let him not ask double-minded, for that man or woman is unstable, tossed to and fro. We need to ask by faith. Jesus said to seek, knock, and ask. When we come to difficult things like difficult decisions and an application here for our individual lives, do we stay? Do we move? Do we sell the house? Do we buy a house? Are we staying in California? Are we moving out of state? Do we uh, force this adult sibling to grow up and move out of the house and take care of themselves and not live off us? Do we cut this person off at work? Do we fire this person because we have to fire them? And even though we like them, this is policy and procedure. We have to fire them. I mean, there are many tough decisions that we have to make in our personal lives, in our workplace decisions that are not easy and they're hard. There's some very hard decisions that we have to make. And they'll... They'll test our, test our obedience to the Lord. And so he says right here, and the context is, it was capital punishment. If God says someone has to be put to death, and you seek to the highest court of appeals, and he says uphold capital punishment, you need to follow through with it. Well, if we just take that principle of just seeking the Lord, a judgment from the Lord, and really letting him speak, we need to obey it, whatever it is. If he says, let it go, just let it go. Let it go. If he says, fight for it, fight for it. The other night in our pastor deacon meeting, uh, Pastor Alex uh, wrapped up our meeting with a prayer, and he said that we would push, plow, and contend. And I thought, that's a good word. It just jumped out like a word from the Lord that we need to push forward with whatever's going on in our life and the call of God. We need to plow faithfully what he's entrusted to us, and we need to be willing to contend for what needs to be contended for. And right now, we want to be doing all three. So if God says do something difficult, do it. If he says move, move. 
If he says stay, stay. If he says kick him out, kick him out. If he says let him in, let him in. If he says give him that, give him that. If he says forgive that, forgive that. We got to just, even in the hardest things, we have to obey whatever the Lord is telling us to do. So if we seek the Lord on a hard thing, he says do this, we got to do it. We just got to do it. And you shall do it, you shall do it, you shall do it. So when we seek the Lord for the difficult decision, me, you, all of us, we need to do it, whatever he says. So if it's standing and you're willing to die on that hill, good, die on that hill. If he says surrender that hill, surrender that hill, and just go forward with the Lord to the next thing he has for you. Now we read on in verse 14. When you come to the land which the Lord your God has given you, of course, that's the land of Israel, the promised land, and possess and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like the nations that are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who's not your brother, but he, that is the king, shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart be turned away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Also, it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in the kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. So here, Moses is looking ahead, and he foresees the time when Israel would have kings. And of course, they had kings. What's interesting, though, is they had about a 300-year period where they did not have kings. That's pretty long. Think how long we've been a nation since the Continental Congress in 1775, 1776, Constitution, all that stuff. The same amount of time, even longer, Israel existed as a nation and did not have kings. They had the judges. But we also know that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So then when you come forward from the time of Christ, well, you come forward from that time where God gave them the Saul, the king around 1000 B.C. They had kings for like four or 500 years. Then they were ruled by kings, various kings, Nebuchadnezzar, the Syrian king before that, then Nebuchadnezzar, and then Darius and Cyrus and all that. And then Roman, they were ruled by Caesar. So by the time Christ came in the world, it was a, uh, a monarchical type of world where even if someone was just a tribal leader of dramatic tribes or whatever, they would still be like a king. They'd be like a king. And so really, as I've been talking about, only the last hundred years since World War I have we seen the end of the monarchical systems that guided humanity. Really, the, the Chinese dynasties and all these things, kings, it's been kings and queens have guided this, governmentally have guided human race much more so than democracies or communism, which are the two opposing worldviews that we're born in, that we see facing, facing off even now on our planet right now. But kings... One of the things that kings and queens always looked upon is that they felt they received their monarchy from the Lord, especially, of course, the European kings, from the Lord himself. That's why in Russia, the Russian Orthodox Church, it's the church, it's God, the church, and the king. That's how Mother Russia looks at it. And, of course, Putin has played on this because he is that role. Remember, he made the state church again in Russia about five years ago. So the Russian Orthodox Church is the state church. He's basically the czar, and it's the people. And 
That's a return to that model, actually, in Russia. And if you study any Russian news, you'll know the Russian people see that, and he, that's very deliberate and absolute. But the thing about kings and queens is they always felt that the multitude could never make the best decision, which actually is pretty correct if you think about it. Because wide and broad is the way that leads to death, and many go thereby, and narrows the gate that leads to life. So whether it was Queen Victoria or William II or these others, they would always, they always felt, and even... Yeah, all of them. They, they, they felt that they received it from God. So in England, it was the Anglican Church, right? So the Anglican Church, you have the Archbishop of Canterbury, and there's that authority, religious authority, for the king or queen of England, and then the people, the subjects. And the same thing with Louis, the sun god, and all the French kings, the same type of thing. And they felt that they were empowered by God to rule and reign over the people and to make decisions in their best interest. And of course, some kings and queens were better than others. Some very much abused that position, but none of them even came close to living up to what a king or queen is meant to be for who Jesus Christ is. We understand that. So even though we're guided by a democracy right now, where even the will of the people has been usurped by corrupt judges, we're moving toward a king who's already reigning over us, who is the king of kings. And he's not going to let us down. He's not going to have a shadow of a turning in how he rules and reigns in our life right now or when he rules on the earth. But he tells us through the prophets that when our king comes, he's going to split the Mount of Olives. And he's going to reign in the city of David. He's going to reign from Jerusalem. You know, of all the places in the world where a thousand rockets could be shot at each other and blowing each other up right now, it's in Jerusalem. It's in Tel Aviv. It's in Israel. Because that's where the return of the king is. So Jesus is that perfect king, and he won't let us down. He's not going to multiply military power with horses like Solomon did. The danger of people of faith to multiply by deceptive strength. There's deceptive strength in horses and chariots in the Old Testament or in tanks and nuclear armament in our day. There's a deceptive strength in it. Our strength can never come from nuclear armament. It must come from the Lord. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And righteousness exalts a nation and sin is reproached to any people. Our King Jesus doesn't multiply wives, which is just ridiculous, because that's unbridled, unchecked flesh. The, fail, the, the failures of people in power, even in our country's history, is just so despicable compared to the biblical model. And even in these monarchs, these, these, heretic, these monarchical systems that were in place for hundreds of years that had their churches and shaped the colonial era and shaped the birth of this nation, there was so much corruption and evil. So Solomon, he multiplied wives. He lived for his flesh. And in the end, it destroyed him and brought consequences and chasing upon his children and the nation of Israel. Remember, he had gold shields. By the time Rehoboam was come to power, the kingdom was divided and he had bronze shields. It was a digression, a regression, and a degeneration. And then the multiplied silver and gold. There was no one wealthier than Solomon. And in the end, it just got taken by everybody else. So you see, humanity moves in political power toward military strength, toward unbridled lust, and toward wealth. And in the end, that's what this planet's moving toward. An Antichrist, Antichrist, in the place of Christ who will control all the world's wealth because you won't be able to buy anything at Albertsons without whatever he expects of you. We can see where that's going. It'll be more than a mask, trust me. 
And he'll live for the flesh with all the power of the devil. He'll control the wealth and he'll have all the power of Satan. And what does Satan want more than anything else? Power. What do the prophets tell us about Satan? He said, I will be, I will be, I will be, I will be. He wants to be God, but he's not. He's the created from the creator. So we're moving towards something. We come from this human history of these things, but in the last hundred years, it's been profoundly changed by the, the voice of the multitude, democracy, or the usurpation of the multitude by survival of the fittest, Darwinism merged with Marxism, becomes socialism and communism. And these are the worldviews we're looking at right now. But take comfort, body of Christ. The king is coming. And he doesn't multiply horses. He doesn't multiply wives. And he doesn't multiply gold and silver. I mean, after all, we're going to walk on streets of gold. We're going to glory. All that we see around us with men and women in power right now, all over the world, what they're doing and the abuse of power in the name of COVID-19 and things they've done. All over the world, not our country alone. Lots of, they're all doing it. It's, the, heart, the heart of man is deceitfully wicked and who can know it? So we shouldn't be surprised, but we should know that this is all prophesied that it's moving toward one great evil king and that has his time. And then the great king who we serve right now in his kingdom is coming. We have to keep our eyes on Jesus. And I'm just grateful that he doesn't multiply wives, horses, or gold and silver. Because he didn't have to. He owns everything. But what he wants to own most of all is our hearts, right? Yes. We pick it up in chapter 18. The priests of the Levites and all the tribe of the Levites, they shall have no part or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the offering of the Lord made by fire and his portion. Therefore, they shall have no inheritance among the, their brethren. The Lord is their inheritance, as he said to them. So this, of course, is a review of what we've covered many times about the place of the Levites. We did a whole topical on this one night. And this shall be, verse 3, and this shall be the priest's due from the people, from those who offer sacrifice, whether it's a bull or a sheep. They shall give to the priest the shoulder, the cheeks, and the stomach, the first fruits of your grain, and your new wine, and your oil, and the first of the fleece of your sheep. You shall give him. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all the tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons forever. So if a Levite comes from any of your gates, from where he dwells among all Israel, and comes with all the desire of his mind to the place which the Lord chooses, then he may serve in the name of the Lord, his God, as all his brethren, the Levites do, who stand there before the Lord. They shall have an equal portion to eat besides what comes from the sale of his inheritance. So in other words... What Moses is teaching here is that the Levites, who of course, served the Lord. They didn't receive property like the other 12 tribes. They were set apart by the Lord. But in being set apart, we've talked a lot about the Levites. They did have one great privilege. They could come and go, and wherever they went, they had Levite rights. So they immediately had the rights of a Levite wherever they went. So they didn't, they didn't own property. They didn't own big farms and vineyards and fig groves and stuff like that. But almost like military, you know, when you're military and you're your boarding flights, like in all those military can now board, like it's the, kind of that thing. Like it's, it's, it's a right that you get that you, you otherwise, and you make sacrifices. A Levite gave up certain things and so they had certain privileges and they could show up and they could partake of the sacrifices just by being a Levite. They got their fair share from that because that's how God set it up to take care of his people. So they gave up, they were giving up a lot being born a Levite and they had no choice in it but the blessing was they had all the blessings of being a Levite. 
It's kind of like us. We might give up a lot serving the Lord, but we have all the blessings in Jesus Christ. He's given us, as we're told in the New Testament, every spiritual blessing. And since we're designed for eternity, it's our spirit and soul that perseveres. The body gets left behind. So we got everything we need. And, you know, you, you, you give up stuff. And, of course, I have such a heart for the military. And we have some military here. And we have people that have served in the past in the military. And just so much respect for the military, being born and raised in a military family during the Vietnam War with my dad as a, military, a Vietnam veteran and being wounded in Vietnam. I just, whenever I see stuff or like disabled American veterans or veterans of foreign war and USO, I just, I just, I don't know, like I have so much respect for Bob Hope and what he did when he was alive for the veterans and going, going to Korea, going to World War II, going to Vietnam. And I just have so much respect for those people that understand the sacrifices so that's why I always want to say, whenever I see a military person, thank you for your service. So thank you for your service. Because we, the military does make great sacrifices. And the Levites gave up a lot to be Levites without even choice. But those who have served in our country, in our military, and in our law enforcement, you, you've given up a lot and you're enduring a lot. And I just want to say thank you for that. And I think it's proper contextually. Levites had no choice, but we make choices. So thank you. Now, we read in verse 9, when you come... Into the land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There, there shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire. That was the infant sacrifice on Molech. So that's a form of emphasize. Or one who practices witchcraft or soothsayers or one who interprets omens or sorcerer or one who conjures spells or a medium or a spirit or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out before, from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you dis- dispossess, listen to soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. At times, there's a temptation to look to, if you feel like the Lord's silent, there is a temptation to look for something more. What's the word of the Lord? Is there some prophet that, or prophetess that has a word for you? I shared the story a few weeks ago about Rasputin, who was the Russian Orthodox priest. He was an ordained priest in the Russian Orthodox Church. He had the highest credentials there in St. Petersburg in 1905. And he became that priest, that private priest to Tsar Alexander and his uh, Tsar Nicholas and his wife Alexandra. And Alexei, their son, had, was hematomic. So they were so vulnerable because it was the heir. And so Alexandra was very religious, but she just gave up all common sense to let this guy Rasputin come in, and he was a con. And yet supernatural things happened when he was around. And there's just such a danger to depart from the written word to some signs and wonders or experience that we think would usurp that and give us a, 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 a quicker answer for maybe what we want to hear instead of waiting on the Lord to hear what we've already heard how different Russian history would be had Rasputin not come into the palace there and changed Russian history and world history. That affects all of us even to this day because the Russia we grew up with during the Cold War is a direct result of the impact of Rasputin and the things that happened with the last Tsar Nicholas before we were born, but when our great uncles and aunts were still alive on this planet when they were younger in their day. Isn't that amazing? I've seen a lot of people led astray by looking for something other than Jesus and his word. It's not Jesus plus this or Jesus and his word or some emotion or some chicken skin experience. 
We're going to always be safely guided by the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit when we stick to his word and we let fact of his word and faith from our heart in his word dictate where we're going, what we're doing. But if we, and make feelings subject to that, but if we take feelings and put that in front of fact, we can easily be led astray. And I've seen lots of people led astray. And again, as Brian Jameson told me, hope sells. And it's amazing. God bless Brian Jameson. When Trinity was dying of cancer, there was a person that came to this church, and they were convinced if Brian Jameson just went to Las Vegas to this one church and got the blessing from this guy who had the holy water, that his daughter Trinity would be healed. And Brian Jameson knew it was a scam. And Brian Jameson's like, I got, I got no time for this. But this guy was so persistent, and he attended this church at this time, and he was so convincing. And Trinity was dying. She was terminal. And I, I encouraged Brian to go. And he went, and he was so mad. It's the maddest I've ever seen him. And he said, Joey, you just got to understand that hope sells, even false hope. I did her memorial on December 4th at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. I don't remember the year anymore, but it was December 4th. I remember the date. And some of you were there. She was decreed to live about 10 years from the Lord Jesus Christ. And all the folly of false hopes. When Jeremy Camp was on the radio at K-Wave in 2000, and Melissa Camp, his wife, had the cancer, and it became known through worship generation and other means, that's when Jeremy was just starting to kind of be known a little bit. I can't tell you how many people called Costa Mesa, oh, this will cure cancer, this will do this, read this book. We got books, we got literature, we got pamphlets, we got this stuff, we got the word of the Lord, this, that, and everything else. You know, in the end, she had a miraculous healing of cancer in her one remaining ovary. She had a wonderful honeymoon. She came home, the cancer came back, and she died in three months. That's what happened in her life. And nothing was going to change that. So it's just such a, a danger to go after Things other than Jesus in his word. Pastor Chuck said it best. We'll move on from this. If you've got a big God, you've always got small problems. If you've got a small God, you're going to always have big problems. And for the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no difference between cancer on your kidney or a headache at night. So don't ever lose perspective of that. If I live, I live. If I die, I die. The Lord is given. The Lord is taken. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We should always be ready for eternity, and we should always be embracing eternity, which is exactly what Pastor Chuck had in mind when he said, if I go, don't even, don't even try to bring me back. And I say the same for me. If I go, don't bring me back. Let me go. And I mean that sincerely. David said it best in Psalm 139, the days were, were fashioned for him, and as yet I lived none of them. Your thoughts are more than the sands of the sea. And as we mentioned recently from Jeremiah 29, what are his thoughts for every day of our life? They're not thoughts of evil, but they're the good thoughts to give us a future and a hope. When we're done, we're done. I have no interest or desire to be on this planet in 2061. You younger people do, and you should. My job will be done when I'm 100, pretty much. I might still be able to pray for you. Your job might be in its fullest prime because some of you will be 60 like I'm 60 right now. 
We don't need anything of the dark side to help us in our journey. Jesus, his promises, his presence, and his power. Now we read on in verse 15. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from, from the midst of you, from your brethren. Him you shall hear according to all you desire to the Lord your God in Oreb in the days where the assembly saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see his great fire anymore lest I die. He's talking there about at Mount Sinai when they received the law. This happened historically about 40 years before. Verse 17, And the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know what the word which the Lord has not spoken? When the prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord God has spoken, has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. And isn't it interesting that false prophets often want to make people afraid of them? Again, if you, I've been in ministry 33 years, and I've seen a lot of false prophets. I've seen some of the weirdest things you can't even imagine. Because when you're standing for truth and you're at, the, you're at the front, the apex of the arrow tip in ministry, you just can't believe the craziness that comes against you. I've seen many a false prophet speak and not have come to pass what they said and make excuses for it. The Jehovah's Witness movement is established by a false prophet. John Charles Russell predicted the world would end in 1917. I can understand why he thought that. I can. But it didn't end in 1917. So that man spoke presumptuously, claiming to be a prophet, and did not speak the truth. And of course, they've had to change their theology as time has gone on, like so many other of those type of organizations do. Again, the prophet here, of course, is Jesus that Moses is talking about. In the New Testament, when the Pharisees went out to see John the Baptist, they asked him, are you the prophet, capital P, that Moses was talking about here in Deuteronomy? He goes, no, I'm not the prophet. I'm the voice in the wilderness that Isaiah was talking about. But then, lest there be any confusion, in the book of Acts, when Peter's preaching in chapter 3, he says that Jesus is this prophet here. And then in Acts chapter 7, right before Stephen's executed as a martyr for Jesus Christ, he says that Jesus is this prophet. So the New Testament interprets the Old Testament, and the Holy Spirit makes clear that this prophet is Jesus. Moses was speaking of who would come, Jesus. And so we get a little bit of insight here where it says, I will raise up a prophet like you from among their brethren. Of course, Jesus is born of the tribe of Judah from Nazareth. It says the common people heard him gladly. He truly was from among the brethren. And I'll put my words in his mouth. Jesus said, I always do those things that please the Father. And he spoke whatever the Father put in his heart to speak. He spoke everything we need to know about the Father is revealed in Jesus the Son. The Gospel of John chapter 1 makes that clear. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. It says, no one has ever seen the Father, but the only begotten of the Son, Jesus Christ. He has declared him to us. And then we see in verse 19, it says, concerning this prophet Jesus, it shall be that whoever will not hear my words of which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. See, God's not going to require anything in the sense like there's no words of Muhammad by which God's going to require of anybody for heaven or hell in that sense, or even Buddha or Confucius or any of the various philosophies 
Karl Marx, Darwin, these people. It's, it's the person and the work and the teaching of Jesus Christ by which we're all measuring eternity. I believe most of you know this and believe this, but if you don't, you need to believe it. Only through faith in Jesus Christ can we be saved. He is the one at the great throne of judgment. When the books are open, it's Jesus judging and will be judged by our response to the revelation of his person to us by the Holy Spirit and by his word. And we'll give an account for every other word and we'll give an account for every thought and intent of our heart. For those that are redeemed through faith in Jesus Christ, it's a day of accounting and rewards. For those that are perishing, the books are open. They're not in his book. And those books are open. And they go away self-condemned. But before they leave his presence to outer darkness, they're going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's a very sobering thought. So this prophecy concerning Jesus is very powerful and very profound. I intend to come back to it on Saturday night in detail. I do want to read chapter 19. It's a short chapter, and there's one thought we want to get from it as we continue through Deuteronomy. Chapter 19, verse 1. When the Lord your God has cut off the nations whose land the Lord your God has given you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall separate three cities for yourself in the midst of your land which the Lord your God has given you to possess. You shall prepare roads for yourself and divide it into three parts of the territory of your land which the Lord your God has given you to inherit that any manslayer may flee there. So remember, this is the manslaughter, death by accident. Verse 4. And this is the case of the manslayer who flees there, that he may live, whoever kills his neighbor unintentionally, not having hated him in the time past, as when a man goes to woods with his neighbor to cut timber, and his hand swings a stroke with the axe to cut down the tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies. He shall flee to one of these cities and live, lest the avenger of the blood, while his anger is hot, pursue the manslayer and overtake him, because the way is long and kill him, though he was not deserving of death. Obviously, manslaughter is not deserving of death. That's the implication. Since he had not hated the victim in time past, therefore I command you, saying, you shall separate three cities for yourself. They did this, in fact, in the book of Joshua. This came to pass. Verse 8. Now, if the Lord your God enlarges your territory, as he swore to your fathers, and gives you the land which he promised to give your fathers, and if you keep all the commandments and do them, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to walk always in his ways, then you shall add three more cities for yourselves beside these three, lest the innocent blood be shed in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, and thus guilt of bloodshed be upon you. But if anyone hates his neighbor, lies in wait for him, rises against him and strikes him mortally, so that he dies and he flees to one of these cities, and the elders of the city shall send and bring him from there and, and deliver him over to the hand of the avenger of the blood that he may die. Your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall put away the guilt of the innocent blood from Israel, that it may go well with you. So in other words, if it truly is murder, it has to be accounted for. There are very evil, wicked people, men and women, who maliciously, premeditatedly murder people. They take life. And we might have empathy for them. We might want to see them saved. But it's God's place in their law at this time to remove them from the planet. They're, they're such evil people. My good friend Dave Hegelmeyer worked at Pelican Bay up there in uh, Northern California, the federal penitentiary for very vicious criminals like mass murder, stuff like that. That's where Charles Manson was. I don't know if he still is. And he, every day he went to work, he said he had to be 100% on guard. I don't know you law enforcement people can understand this, but he could never, ever let his guard down. He had to be razor sharp all the time. The inmates were plotting his death. These are vicious people and would never want them on the pier in Huntington Beach when you're there with your grandkids. They can't be in society with you when you're shopping at Trader Joe's. There's no place for them in society. They're violent, evil people. 
and law-abiding people and God-fearing people and general humanity itself needs to be protected from such evil people. Now, it's not our job to figure out who they are and how it all plays out, unless it is your job. But we should never underestimate that there's evil on this planet. And when it's... You, your heart can break for manslaughter because there's manslaughter stuff that just breaks my heart. And even the foolishness that would become second-degree murder, like the girl that killed the three students and injured the other one at that car accident four years ago down here at Magnolia and PCH. But God's saying, look, man, evil is evil. And really evil people are really evil. And you can't, you can't pity them. Now, this is the law. But we can't all just sing Kumbaya and let these people out of Pelican Bay and think that it's going to be a safe society for us. Do you understand that? I think you do, but it's, this is God's word. We need to understand it. Now, he goes on to say this, verse 14. You shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set, and your inheritance, which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God has given to you to possess. This is a, a basis that many cite for the right of personal property, the respect for personal property, and the right to own personal property. There's a lot of places in the world where the governments don't like you owning personal property. Governments like to own property. <laughs> <laughs> they like to own the property because the property is a true wealth. It's not funny money that's worthless. Real estate's always got value. Our government likes to own land. Most governments do. The Soviet Union loved to own land. They took the land, they redistributed it. That's what the Soviet Union did. And it is what it is. So this is God's design for them and their covenant that we respect property, the right to own property and the distinction of property in your neighbor's property. So I would just say the basic principle is this. We need to respect people's rights for their, to have property. Respect people's space and understand that that's their space, that's their deal. And if you live in a neighborhood where you keep your house clean and someone else doesn't, what are you going to do? I don't know, man. I, I, but you just got to realize that that's the way God set it up. Verse 15, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. If a false witness arise against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days, and the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother, so you shall put away the evil from among you. And those who remain shall hear in fear, and hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. Life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now, it is noteworthy, of course, eye for eye, tooth for tooth is a restraint. Because rarely do we want equal punishment for what someone did to us. We want more severe punishment. Thus, it just never ends. Kind of like the cycle in the Middle East. It just never ends. And it's not going until Jesus comes back. But that's another study. So... Coming back to verse 19, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother, so you shall put away the evil from, your, from among yourself. This is such a clear principle, and we'll close with this thought tonight. This is why it's so crucial to be discerning but not condemning. We need to discern evil men and evil women, and we need to stay far from them and let their influence on our life be as, a minimal, as minimally invasive as possible. Obviously, when this evil government, there's not much you can do about that, but still, you want to do the best you can to fear God and uh, honor the king and love the brotherhood, as it says in First Peter. But if you're living under Hitler, that's pretty hard to do, right? So you just do the best you can do. But in the end, it says here that in the measure you judge, you'll be judged of you. That's what it's saying. 
So whoever would have thought something on that person and it's a false witness, then they get to face that punishment. And we need to look no farther than the book of Esther where that's exactly what happened with Haman and Mordecai. Because Haman built the hangman's noose for Mordecai, but Mordecai was innocent, had done nothing wrong. But Haman abused his power, was jealous of Mordecai, and he built that hangman's noose. And, and of all the stories in the Bible, there's a perfect justice by, by the measure you judge will be judged of you. It's Mordecai and Haman. Because Haman was rejoicing the night before that he was going to hang Mordecai the Jew from that gallow the next day. But in fact, in the wheels of God's economy and justice on planet Earth, how they played out in that generation at that time, in the Medo-Persian Empire around 450 BC, he hung on the very gallow he built. What might have Haman thought when they marched him to that gallow as he was building it filled with bitterness and envy and jealousy? Why? Because Mordecai wouldn't bow to him and he hated Jews. So driven, the rest of the kingdom bowed to him. But isn't that the way it is? You can't be grateful for what you do have. You have to be upset with what you don't have. And that goes back to the gold and silver, the wives and the horses. It's never enough. Haman, all the blessings he had, he lost in one day because his bitterness and obsession against Mordecai. And he built that hangman's noose and he himself hung on it. What he must have thought, his last thoughts, when they put that noose around his neck, I wonder if he had any remorse over building it a few days before or so often people like that are. He's still spewing poison to the last breath. I guess we'll never know because he's not where I'm intending to go and I don't think he's where you're intending to go. That was just the beginning of his hell. But when we come back to the church, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in the measure you judge another, it'll be judged of you. Condemn not lest you be condemned. And it is ironic If you follow the sequence of sowing and reaping, which we've talked about quite a bit on blessings with time, energy, and resources, but if you follow that on the universal laws of the spiritual law of the universe, as it says in Galatians, as a man or woman sows, so shall they reap. And it says if you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit, you'll reap life. But we also know in the measure you judge, it'll be judged of you. Jesus said that. So this is a tricky thing about our time. It's to be discerning of evil and agendas and things that are contrary to the gospel be able to discern that and work through that and just give that to the Lord. We're going to push, we're going to plow, and we're going to contend. And I'm not going to contend for anything. I'm not called to contend, but I'm very much willing to contend for what I'm called to contend. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, it's not mine to judge anyone anywhere. And I've been making this very clear as we've been going through Deuteronomy. But I'm called to discern, and so are you. The prudent foresee evil and take refuge, but the foolish pass on and are punished. And there is a critical place for critical thinking. And just using the scriptures as a measure, is this a good decision or a bad decision? And, and just staying away from evil people and evil agendas. This last thought, as we discern evil, let's make sure we're not judging jury of things that we think are evil in that sense. But just... Let God be God and let God be true and let us just keep trusting him and we keep on forgiving. Again, we talk about what we control. We, can pure, we control purity, we control forgiveness, and we let trials and tribulations work together for good in our life. If we do those three things, we'll have great maturity and great equity for the kingdom of God. But we don't want to be found on the day of the Lord that we have bitterness or wrath or condemnation in our heart toward anybody. There's lots of people I maybe don't like or I don't like what they stand for and what they say and what they do. 
but I don't have time to blog against them or even go after them or judge them. Their own words will judge them, even as ours will judge us. So God help us to be discerning, wise as serpents, gentle as doves, and let God be true and every man a liar.